Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales with my friend Brad Edwards, and we are seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And today we're doing something a little different. If you've been with us for a little while, you know that in this season of our podcast, We've been exploring the ways that radical individualism has been weaponized by both right and left sides of our culture. And so we've seen unprecedented polarization over the handling of COVID-19 and the presidential election and just about everything else in this crazy year that we're all living through. Though the way that uh, these things manifest themselves look different on different ends of the cultural spectrum, and yet the root cause is the same, radical individualism, which privileges individual autonomy and self-expression to incredibly high degrees. We've explored this thesis in a variety of ways in this season of Everything Just Changed, and today we're wrapping up season two by bringing you a conversation where Brad was interviewed by Confluence Ministries in Denver, Colorado, in response to his article at Mere Orthodoxy a few weeks ago. We thought this would be a great, really helpful way to wrap up season two because it summarizes the thesis we've been exploring this whole season, and it will be really helpful to you whether you are new to our podcast or if you've been with us from the beginning. So without further introduction, here is Brad's conversation with Confluence Ministries. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to uh, the latest uh, adventure here at the uh, in- Incarnational Leadership Initiative. Um, we've, uh, we've been talking over the last uh, several months about leadership in a, in a time of division and chaos. And um, as we approach the election, you may have noticed that the division and the chaos are becoming a, more pronounced. Uh, in in spite of the fact that it seemed that that was maybe not even possible, um, but it is possible, and and here it is right right in front of us. Um, in about uh, gosh, what thirteen days, twelve days, we are going to have an election, and it will be an election unlike any election that we've had certainly in any of our lifetimes, uh, probably unlike any election we've had in American history. Um, I'm, there are going to be logistical problems. There are going to be um, widespread distrust of the uh, results. There's going to be difficulty in producing results. Um, I, th- my personal opinion is that there's almost certainly going to be violence. Um, and all this stuff that we describe here is what we normally think of as, uh, you know, third world banana republic kind of uh, political things, not things related to uh, the grand tradition of uh, American political stability. And so we have been exploring over a long period of time here um, where the culture is, kind of how we got here, and more than anything else, what is the church's place in all of this? Um, we, we, We talked a little bit um, at an earlier meeting about uh, the church and its relationship to the state and to the culture and how for 1500 years or so uh, the church has been in a favored um, in a favored position uh, vis-a-vis the culture uh, but that is no longer true and the culture that we were in a uh, favored uh, position to 
is what we might call a culture of, of a liberal consensus, uh, a culture that included very strongly the idea of pluralism. And in the American uh, tradition, uh, it was the idea that uh, we are one tribe, we are Americans, we are a melting pot, we are a new kind of alloy, and everything else, including our faith and our church practice and all that other stuff, is is kind of a subset of our overall identity as Americans. Well, that, um, I don't think I have to uh, explain too much, is now gone, and we can no longer rely on that liberal consensus, on that pluralistic approach. And so that puts the church in a different place. And um, like most things that can be seen as dangers, it's also a challenge. And so um, our, our whole thing uh, this time around is to um, look a little bit more at the challenges involved. And as a result, we have uh, as our guest, Brad Edwards, who is the uh, pastor of a church in Lafayette called The Table. And uh, Brad is, among other things, uh, the author of some pretty fantastic articles. Uh, one that caught my attention, especially, was in uh, on the website Mere Orthodoxy about the Church of Individualism. And so we're going to talk to Brad a little bit about that today and how that uh, can enlarge on our view of what's going on in the culture and how the church needs to respond. So, uh, Brad, uh, thank you for being here with us today. Uh, also with us today is Pete Menconi. Uh, most of you know Pete. Um, uh, gosh, what 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 haven't you done, Pete? Um, uh, I haven't had a baby. What what now? I haven't had a baby. <laughs> well, okay, that's probably the only thing. Yes. Uh, so uh, yeah, Pete uh, has done uh, inner, inner city ministry, multicultural ministry. He's done international outreach. He's done medical missions. He's done pretty much anything you can uh, put a finger on. Uh, he's now shaking his head because his modesty is being offended. Also the author of uh, several books on uh, the intergenerational church and uh, also on uh, discipleship for people of uh, various ages. Uh, Jay, uh, yeah, show us the show us the book. Uh, give us the hands. Yes, there we go. All right. So um, Pete's with us today as well. Uh, Jude wanted me to mention uh, our next uh, couple of upcoming meetings. Uh, uh, our next uh, meeting for the ILI will be on <laughs> November the 4th, which is the day after Election Day. Uh, the day after Election Day, we may or may not know anything uh, about the things that are coming up. And even if we know something, um, chances are uh, whatever it is we think we know uh, will be widely contested. So um, that ought to be a very interesting meeting. But as we get ourselves ready for that, uh, oh, oh, and, and then the one after that, on the 18th of November, um, will feature the uh, American Bible Society and their, uh, and their trauma um, uh, training. So uh, that will come up on the 18th. So anyway, uh, Brad, uh, welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about the table. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This is, this is awesome. Um, yeah, so we're a, we're a church plant. We are I've described it as we're in those kind of awkward teenage years where you are like driving, but you can't drink yet. And your voice is cracking. One leg is slightly longer than the other and everything's awkward, but you have to figure out how to grow into being a real church and an established church. So, uh, so you, you want to grow into being able to drink and drive at the same time. 
I would maybe not at the same time, but you know, within a 24 hour period, that'd be great. Okay. Um, I mean, you gotta, how, how else can you get to the, the breweries that are a little bit further away? So, um, no, so we, uh, are, like I said, we're a church plant. Uh, we started in, actually we, we moved to weekly services on Sunday morning, just two Sundays before the 2016 presidential election. And so the, the political, environment that has been kind of determining and characterizing most of our cultural conversations over the last four to several years uh, has has been very defining in a lot of ways uh, as, as a church. Um, actually, Tim Keller, he, he talks about how 9-11 became this catalyst in New York City that, that they, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, grew by leaps and bounds because it exposed the the assumptions and the secular assumptions in New York City and exposed an emptiness that people were experiencing. And the table kind of experienced a very similar uh, catalyzing event with the 2016 election, but it wasn't because it wasn't a secular emptiness. It was actually a more of an evangelical empty, emptiness. Um, and so, one aspect of the table that has been so kind of influenced by that is we we planted it really hoping to and seeking to reach kind of our, our secular neighbors uh, and to be the kind of church where they could belong before and regardless of whether they believe. But we ended up having a, a flood of people I, I refer to as, as post-evangelical, right? Those who are either frustrated with an emptiness within evangelicalism or outright uh, kind of a, a political hybridization that has married evangelicalism to GOP politics in particular. And so there's a lot of wrestling and frustra like frustration and trying to figure out which end is up spiritually. And that kind of, in ways we never intended, has, has really much, very much defined the table. So um, is there a difference between post-evangelicals and ex-evangelicals? Yeah, good. That's a good question. Because these terms are <laughs> really nuanced, right? Ex-evangelical, as I understand it, are those who are probably more along the lines of, if you're familiar with the the uh, the Liturgist podcast, which is uh, uh, David Gunger is involved, who's a, another Denver native too. And it's it's more those who are deconstructing theologically and not just culturally, uh, and and are really questioning the entire paradigm of of the church and what is faith in general and what is the gospel right post-evangelical are those who they're they're not ex-evangelical at least not yet uh but they are really wrestling with and have have rejected evangelical subculture but still have some some affinity and value for for church as an institution and are, are just really wrestling with like okay if if i know this is important and i i, I do believe Jesus is who he says he is. What do I do with uh, a church that says social justice is Marxist and anti-Christian, but uh, a prophet Isaiah who says care for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, all of those are necessarily Christian concerns and responsibilities. How do I reconcile that? And and right. that's people struggling with that tension is very much what I, I, I define as post-evangelical. So, so the ex-evangelicals then are people who've just basically walked away from the whole thing, whereas mm -hmm. the post-evangelicals are, pe are people who feel enough of a connection to, to the Jesus that they have come to know that they want to try to um, forge some sort of meaning out of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it, 
it really is in a in a tragic way they're reading the same Bible that their evangelical parents especially uh, are, but they see Jesus' compassion for the poor and they're being shaped by that. But, but then it doesn't seem to, there's no kind of cultural expression or, or representation of that, or, or it's at least, you know, this is something that, that, that politics is, is accepted from like, this is, we've kind of compartmentalized that as something distinct from the church's responsibility. And, and we, that's something you do overseas, not with your neighbor. Okay. Okay, good. Now you mentioned the the parents, and this was a, a point you made in the article that I was talking about, which was the the split, if you will, and, and we're going to get a, a little more deeply into this. But the split between um, uh, the 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 evangelical parents who discovered uh, belonging, they discovered community, and they discovered ritual in the in the evangelical church, and, but they did not discover meaning and mission Mm -hmm. and and you find the younger ones who are looking for meaning and mission um and and so you have this tension between the idea of of uh ritual and community and the idea of meaning and mission um Mm -hmm. how do you go about trying to integrate those things i I mean that is that is the question right um the way that we have been trying to do it at the table is um Right. One challenge and and kind of concurrent frustration with the church has been that we, you know, as the church can almost feel like we if if it's not in-house, if it's not something that we have started as a ministry to, you know, a mercy ministry or missions ministries, that kind of thing, then then it's not as good as the one that we start. And so that is a frustration, but why should we not, why should we reinvent the wheel if there's somebody else who's doing this better? Why don't we just support and, and jump onto and, and participate in what God is doing through in other means and other, in other areas. And so we've tried to do that by like, we're partnering with community food share here in Boulder. And we gave them a a $25,000 grant to try and jumpstart a relationship with them (laughs) during the pandemic. It's been (laughs) a little bit harder. Um, and we have a lot of young families who are just trying to keep their head above water, but in the long term, we really hope to, to be, uh, tightly involved in, in what, where, where those needs are, but that being not a, uh, a separate thing that is kind of like an icing on the cake or an intramural for Christians, but actually something that needs to be an, a necessary part of our definition of what it means to, to make disciples. Um, discipleship is not distinct from or separate from evangelism, right? That you, that's the, or, or, or serving the poor or loving your neighbors yourself. These arbitrary distinctions in a lot of ways are the result of compartmental, the same compartmentalization I was talking about. So the more that we can uh, blur those lines and validate that kind of ordinary love uh, in everyday life, is, that's, that's just so important. Yeah. Well, I think as, uh, if blurring the lines is um, preparatory to erasing them and then demolishing them altogether, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, you were talking about discipleship, and, and, and this is um, a, a big theme of, of what you were talking about in the Church of Individualism, although it's, it's kind of a sub, subtextual theme, um, is about the, the contrast between what we might call the first table of the law, which is governed by you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your might, uh, all, your, all your mind, all your heart, all your strength, and the second table of the law, which is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, 
you make the point that secularism is essentially a Christian her uh, heresy, uh, which emphasizes wanting the fruits of the kingdom without the king. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so this, this category, my, so I host a, a co-host a podcast called Everything Just Change. And my co-host Bryce and I have been really influenced by a, an Aussie pastor and author by the name of Mark Sayers. And he has an even better podcast than ours called This Cultural Moment that I highly, highly recommend. And this is where he, along with a, another book of his called Reappearing Church, he explored this idea that secularism is, is standing on the shoulders of uh, of Christ, the Christian values of dignity, justice, beauty, mercy, uh, that was very much cemented in, in Western European and American culture. But then kind of, we, we chucked the, you know, took the baby out of the bathwater, but wanted to keep the bathwater, right? So we, we wanted to keep the kingdom values um, and kind of redefine them and reshape them according to especially progressive culture. But you can't actually do that um, you're, you're standing on the shoulders of, of, of Christendom. In, in a I'll sense. Say that, yeah. It, it, that's really interesting. Cause I heard a thing just the other day from a young guy, I won't mention any names, but he was, uh, one of these, um, uh, you know, angry apologetics kind of guys. Um, but, and, and he, I mean, he was very good at what he did, but, um, you know, the whole angry apologetic thing is maybe not so attractive to everybody, but, um, but his, one of his central points was, <clears throat> talking about atheism in particular, saying, you guys have to borrow those values from us. Yeah. <clears throat> and he was saying it in a very angry way. You just said it in a less angry way. But it's 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 not a matter of um understanding what secularism is or not knowing that it's a heresy. It's just a matter of how how do you orient yourself toward it? Do you point your finger and yell, or do you try to find some way to say, hey, you know where those values come from? And do you know what sustains them? Oh, yeah. No, no, this this is the, that it, what you're describing is the difference between uh, a posture that leads to, to culture wars or in a posture that leads to uh, a, a redemptive presence within and among a culture that is like uh, yeast spreading through the dough, right? That is... That, 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 that's in a book somewhere, right? I mean, well, it, at least one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but this kind of like to, you know, Richard Niebuhr's, uh, you know, Christ and culture paradigm, this Christ against culture attitude is... Uh, has led to a confusion of discipleship within evangelicalism that says these kingdom values are intrinsically atheist. We've actually, we're, we're giving over, handing over the keys to these otherwise Christian distinctives to secularism instead of saying like, yes, we agree with you. In fact, we value them even more than you do because if you valued those as comprehensively and as potently as we did, here's what you would add to the plate. You wouldn't just be concerned about, you know, immigrants and the poor. You would be concerned about the unborn as well. And, and that is a criticism that, that, that the kind of cultural progressive uh, left has said at, at, rightly of the conservative, often evangelical right. Uh, we should be concerned about all life, right? So instead of having this false dichotomy between 
you know, do you have progressive values or conservative values? We should have a both and approach that actually has scripture as a lens and a foundation instead of our political categories. Right. And those political categories, I mean, I, I think what we're seeing right now, and unfortunately what we're seeing in the church as well, is that the political categories have swallowed everything else up. Yes. Yes. And this is, the, I scratch on this in the article, but the, the root of this is, okay, how do we define individualism? Like, what is it about that that leads us into uh, a, a a captivity to those po- those political categories? So we define, Bryce and I, in our podcast, uh, Everything Just Changed, as uh, the pursuit of an identity that is achieved rather than received, right? We try to achieve our dignity, value, and worth. We want to source it according to our uh, determination rather than to receive that either from, I mean, ultimately we would say as Christians, God, but in an earthly mediator, mediatorial sense, God's presence on earth, which is the church. So rather than receiving that, we're going to go out and achieve it and go find it somewhere else. And for many people, and this is the left and the right, evangelical and secular, uh, we are trying to source our identity, our dignity, value, and worth through political engagement and political achievement. Yeah, and and it is so natural to us because it's the air that we've been breathing for a very long time. Because the genius, if you will, of the of the liberal consensus that I mentioned before, the genius of the founders of this country and the guys that they were working from was the was the discovery of the value, the infinite value of the individual. And so when you begin with that idea, unless that idea is leavened by the gospel, then eventually you end up with what we have. Um, and, and you end up with a church that, that, is, um, that preaches a self-indulgent gospel. It's a it's a church that says I I, I often say uh, um, you know context determines content and the the context of the gospel says uh, um, says it's not about you it's about them now go the context of the church has become it's all about you now stay and well, and so the the uh, the uh, the you it's not about you uh, is plural y- yes. It is about it's it's about them and you all or if uh, as uh, Jay uh, as a fellow St. Louis native would say uh, with me uh, y'all uh, need to uh, get on it right because it's not an individual function when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself the the commandment is given in the context of a crowd and that is the mission of the church not the individual uh, the individual is formed and shaped by the mission of the church as opposed to, first and foremost, yes, we have individual agency and responsibility, but we've got it backwards. Right. And, and, and ultimately, and again, this is, this is the kind of the paradox that underlies the faith. Ultimately, you can't come to faith in Christ unless you have an individual experience. It, it, It happens on an individual level. But once it's happened on an individual level, then it needs to become directed outward. Well, and here's here's where uh, I would even add some things onto that because so I, 
I'm, I'm a PCA pastor, Presbyterian reformed. We read a lot of old dead white guys. I mean, it's, it's yeah. So that's, that's kind of like my, my sub tribe. Right. Right. Uh, And, and what I, this is part of the reason why our, our sacramentology actually matters, right? Is the Lord's supper an individual experience between you and Jesus where you remember the cross? Yes, it is at least that. But actually, it is the presence of God in and among his people as his people, plural, participate in the hospitality he affords us in and through the cross. Hence, our church name, The Table, right? So the, the, the alternative to individualism that brings health here is actually a covenantalism, right? Which is not communalism, right? It's not a, a the opposite of individualism. It is the intersection of individuals and communities combined together. And that is why Presbyterians baptize infants, right? Because we believe that a person's uh, faith and salvation is is it's not mediated in a way that is a capital M replaces Jesus, but is in many ways delivered in and through the people of God. And we are putting our faith in God to bring that about, which yeah. is a huge act of faith. Right. And, and, and so there's this paradoxical um, truth that, that the, the individual will is involved, but nonetheless, it doesn't happen apart from the community of faith and which is the community of faith, not just the one that's present before you, but the, but, forever and ever behind you um so it's a it's a bringing that reality to bear on our current cultural questions is is a big deal and um unfortunately for generations the church has kind of punted on that um because we've just been sailing along uh riding the crest of this of this liberal consensus and now that the liberal consensus is broken down, we can't write it anymore. Yeah, I, no, I mean the. This is why I, I. One of the some of the classes in seminary that I wish I paid even more attention to, but they were also my favorite classes. I'm still kicking myself. Um, were around church history, and actually understanding and seeing, with the benefit of hindsight, how the church has either bucked against individualism or been kind of co-opted or co-opted it in ways that they thought that we, the church thought was actually going to be like relevant or contextualizing, but ended up actually being influenced more by it than the gospel is so helpful for being serving as a mirror to reflect back into this current moment and understand like, Oh, that's how we got here. Yeah. Now we might have some clues or inklings on how we can, reverse the course or, or, or get beyond where we are now. So, so secularism then is, is the heresy that wants the fruits of the kingdom without the king. Mm -hmm. Evangelicalism has almost become a mirror uh, heresy where what we want is the king without the kingdom. Mm -hmm. We want to pay attention to the first table of the law, the first four commandments but we don't go in so much for that love your neighbor bit. The, the love your neighbor bit is a bit problematic. Um, so so the, there are a lot of criticisms of that out there now, and a lot of them are, are very well-founded and necessary. But going back to the difference between ex-evangelicals and post-evangelicals, is there some way to save this thing is there some way to reintegrate 
those the 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 two great commandments uh, i really hope so uh, <laughs> i mean otherwise I, we're all gonna have to sell cars or something right well i mean even beyond that like how, if if and we've kind of been circling around this claim uh so far in the conversation but if institutions are the identity shaping vehicle humanly speaking, that we have available to us, if those institutions are not in their DNA saturated with a, a love God and love neighbor, both and paradigm, uh, then, then yeah, we, we are just going to continue accelerating and sprinting down this, this trajectory. Um, but I think one of the, the first things that has to happen is, is frankly, I'll just be honest. I think one of the the things that are coming down the pike uh, that I don't know how to avoid is a, a massive winnowing and implosion within evangelicalism that we're seeing a lot of snippets of now, but it's just going to get a whole hell of a lot worse. Um, and it almost has to, because there's no way to untangle the um, idolatry of politics within the church without the institutions that are compromised failing first. And so we need new institutions. This is part of the reason why I'm, I'm, I mean, I didn't know it at the time when we planted the table, but this is one of the reasons why I, I especially believe in what we're doing now, because we need new institutions that are able to, to shape in a different way without that complicity. Yeah. Let's talk about institutions, especially. I, um, I saw something I, a while back. I don't remember exactly where I saw it, but it, it, this guy was talking about the necessity of mediating institutions. And he was talking about it from a general sociological point of view. Um, you know, things, whatever they are, whether they're fraternal organizations or whether they're charitable organizations or <clears throat> whether they're, you know, community choirs or whatever, the mediating institutions stand between the individual and the state. Hmm. If you look at if you look at um, countries that have a very oppressive state, it's because there are no mediating institutions. The, 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 the weight of the state comes down directly upon the individual. But what I'm seeing here now is not only the breakdown of the mediate uh, of the mediating institutions um, affecting the relationship between the individual and the state, but also between individuals and individuals. Mm. So we now have you know, uh, this situation where increasingly and increasingly we have people right up in each other's faces and, you know, ready for action. Um, so so the rebuilding of those institutions uh, becomes, uh, becomes a necessity, <clears throat> but it also becomes very difficult because people have become so cynical about institutions. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, gosh, there's so much to say about this. Um, really influenced. And I feel like the, the thesis you're, you're talking about, it was probably uh, an author and a, a, a political commentator by the name of Yuval Levin. And yes. he wrote this amazing book called The Fractured Republic. Yes. Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism. And he just came out with another book called A Time to Build that is is basically expanding on that thesis even more potently. But the, the point that he's making is that as individualism is in kind of injected with this, the nitrous uh, and fuel that is the internet, globalization, social media, especially you, and, and the, the awareness that there are power abuses within institution 
inst in, within institutions gives the perception that the the abuses of power and the brokenness of institutions are far more common than they actually are. And that has been what fuels the skepticism of institutions, leading people to, to, to find their identity more individualistically. But instead of, it's, it's basically this follows the same trajectory that we have seen in the country economically, right? The hollowing out of the middle class. And as things get more polarized, they actually get more localized in terms of individuals, but not necessarily individual communities and nationalized politically. So political parties get co-opted as, as, as identity express expression vehicles rather than uh, a firm institution that anchors and slows change so that things happen more fruitfully. And so he makes a really great point in here. You, you can see this. Basically, the, the cultural left in the United States um, ha is, is now pursuing, and, and probably for the last 60, 70 years at least, pursues individual uh, social freedom and national economic consolidation. The right flips it. They pursue uh, individual economic freedom and national social consolidation and conformity consistency, right? And so you, those are basically two complementary ways of trying to find your identity and to, in a sense, make sure your identity, your dignity, value, and worth is protected at the expense of your neighbors. Right. And institutions otherwise would provide the anchor so that the, you know, whatever's happening nationally is not a threat. And, and you actually don't feel the need to enforce your views on other people. That's so, yeah. all of this. Right. So, so if, if, if your identity is tribal mm -hmm. and this country, uh, which used to be one tribe called Americans is now two tribes. <clears throat> if your identity is tribal, then it is not only ne uh, necessary that your tribe succeed. It is also necessary that the other tribe fail. Yeah. It's, it, it's not just necessary that you, um, you know, win in your uh, project in some way, but it's necessary to crush them because they are the problem. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this this idea that they are the problem has infected our politics, you know, to a point of utter malignancy. And um, unfortunately, that um, identity uh, dynamic is being re-imported into the church. Yeah. And it, it, in one sense, it, it's, it makes complete sense. If you look at the foundation and the, the DNA of our country, right? We, we were a country where oppressed minorities and especially religious minorities are, were fleeing Western Europe in order to build their own utopia. And so the initial posture is one of it, it, Frankly, it has led to a cultural persecution complex uh, that, and especially within evangelicalism, we actually don't know how to exist and what an identity would be without having somebody persecuting us. Uh, and, and we wouldn't actually, we, it, it would feel unanchored and unmoored because it's such a part of the social cultural fabric of evangelicalism, right? Um, but it has always required the persecution and oppression of other people. This is why slavery took so much longer in the U United States to get undone. And that's why the civil rights era in the, in the mid 20th century took way too long 
because it's embedded into this persecution complex that spiritualizes fear and anxiety. And that's that's part of what gets co-opted politically because politics thrive on fear and anxiety. And it's, it's actually part of the evangelical DNA in a sense. And so that's not necessarily the case in other countries. We actually, in our podcast, we were interviewing Mark Sayers, who I was talking about earlier. And he made the amazing point that the original American narrative as compared to the Australian foundational narrative is one of utopianism of come create in this blank canvas, uh, a, your own, like the kingdom of God on earth and Australia, it was dystopianism. It was a, a penal colony originally. So there's, there's like, you're, you're not, this is punishment for you to be here. And so any good that comes about is actually amazing. It's huge. It, you, you, it's not assumed. Yeah. And it's amazing how much that has shaped and formed as a contrast to the evangelical church in Australia versus the white evangelical church in the United States, how different that is. That's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Everything is an upgrade if you start off as a bunch of drunken criminals. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, that's a far more succinct uh, summary. I like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 it should be a t-shirt. <laughs> I, I have family in Australia. I, I, I need to promote that. Um, Okay. Uh, wow. Um, there are so many different directions we could go with this, but we want to try to bring it back because um, this doesn't go on forever. Uh, we want to try to bring it back to the idea of with, with America divided into two tribes that are at each other's throats and both of which have like existential views of, you know, what the possible, I mean, when, if you listen to people on the left or the right right now, you would believe that the world ends on November the 3rd, 2020. Yeah. Um, there are people who believe, you know, absolutely that um, unless Donald Trump is given four more years, um, the world is finished. Mm -hmm. And there are other people who believe that if Donald Trump is given four more years, the world is finished. Um, and both of those sides are equally sincere and neither one of them is necessarily stupider than the other, but um, but they are both viewing things through um, through a lens that I don't think the church can allow itself to be co-opted into. So there's a lot of criticism these days, especially when it comes to social justice issues, for people who say, "Hey, just preach the gospel," but frankly, somebody's got to preach the gospel. Um, there's got to be something other than my side wins and your side loses. There's got to be something in the kingdom of God that brings a different kind of dynamic. So let's spend a few minutes trying to feel our way into what that looks like. Man, um, I think anyone that says, here's the silver bullet, here's the answer, is either an idiot or a liar. Uh, so does that I, mean I should cancel my book, my, my book release, <laughs> you know, maybe just get a, a good editor. Um, but, <laughs> um, what, one of the, one of the people I think I am, I am probably most indebted to, especially thinking about this, uh, how this works out politically, um, is David French and, um, <laughs> Jeff, you and I have been, uh, talked about, about this and I have a total man crush on the guy, but, and we were able to have him on for our podcast interview him there too, because 
I have loved and deeply appreciated how, as a conservative, a journalist and political commentator, he has been unbelievably consistent uh, in his in his ethic and in his support or criticism, both of his own tribe and the other tribe. And man, his his book, um, Divided We Fall, that just came out, I, I would recommend to anyone and everyone um, because he basically makes the the claim that we can't assume that as a country, we actually can stay together and that we won't have some kind of a, a secession in the next, you know, decade or three, you know, it's just, it's, he's not saying it's going to happen, but that we can't assume it won't. And a huge part of uh, what he talked to us in our, when we interviewed him, which we, we really wanted to make this specific to the church and not just the political sphere, which is what he focuses on in his book. He made the really great point is that, you know, the church has got to recover a holistic theology rooted in Micah 6, 8. Uh, that is the Lord, your God has, he has told you what it, he requires to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord, your God. Now, we get we we really want to focus on the the do justice and love mercy part, uh, but he makes the point of we need to, let's let's flip this and stop, let's let's talk about what it means to walk humbly first, and then maybe if we can uh, at least pass a minimum threshold, we can start talking about justice and mercy because uh, we we need to we actually need to focus on that humility piece. Yeah. Uh, I I would say you know, what that looks like is, for example, our church, we're doing, we're in the middle of a politics sermon series, not just a sermon on politics. And we're not talking about like the issues, like the party platforms. We're, we're up, we're rooting this really upstream to understand what, what is, what, what are politics anyway, in terms of the biblical narrative? How do we apply not just positions that have been determined to be biblical for, by somebody else or not, but Let's let's take a step back and, and, and ask this broader question. And I and I feel like the most important part of that and the thing that is going to, to help us to walk humbly, I, I just go back to um Joshua, right? When Joshua is is and and Israel are leaving the wilderness and entering into the promised land, they come up to Jericho and they surround the city, they're settling in for a siege, and the angel of the Lord uh walks up to the encampment. Joshua goes out to meet him. And Joshua asks the question, are you with us? Are you on our side or are you with our enemy? And the angel of the Lord, who uh, very uh, established theologians suspect and think that this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, says, he answers, no. <laughs> he said, your false dichotomies are bunk. <laughs> he says, rather, I am the commander of the Lord's army, and I have come. Joshua's response was to bow and kneel in worship. And to take off his shoes. To, to, feel, to feel the dirt of the holy land between his toes. To make it real. Yes. It's, it's, it's an incarnational moment where not only the pre-incarnate Christ appears, but Joshua's mission now becomes dirt between his toes it becomes something he can feel uh, yeah it's it is i hear a lot of 
comparisons and 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 descriptions of President Trump as a you know he's a, a Nebuchadnezzar or maybe he's a David who's just really sinful and flawed. And I actually think he's the walls of Jericho. I think he is the 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 thing that is confronting the and I'm I'm going to be real specific the white evangelical church in the United States, and we are going to God and asking, are you on our side or theirs? And God is saying, no, you misunderstand. I am the Lord, your God. You do not, I do not fit into your categories. You fit into mine. And that's really actually good news. If we have the humility to shut our pie holes and stop acting as if this is another flight 93 election or that God isn't sovereign. And if we don't vote our candidate into office, then the world is going to implode. He upholds all things with his righteous right hand. He sustains creation moment by moment. How dare we assume so much agency when God is in control? Right. We can't start there. We're doomed. Right, right. Yes, um, uh, I, I love the way you describe it, and I've, I've thought the same way about that moment. <clears throat> Joshua says, are you on our side or theirs? And God says, uh, Jesus says, "It's that's you're asking the wrong question. The question is, are you on my side? Uh-huh. It's not whether I'm on your side. Um, and, and that is a, uh, that is a thing. Yes, we can only recover through, through humility. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that, uh, in Matthew five, starting in verse three, as Jesus, uh, um, outlines the criteria for the kingdom of God, the very first one is humility. Mm-hmm. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. In other words, if you think you're bringing anything to the table here, you're, you're starting in the wrong spot. Absolutely. Right. And he goes, he goes on to say, you must hate your father and mother uh, in order to love me. In order to love me, you must hate. Now he's not, he's not saying you actually have to emotionally loathe. That's a Semitic way, a, a teaching tool to say that second place in your heart must be so firmly distantly second place that it may as well functionally be hate by comparison. And this is important because we we have conditioned our faith on our politics and said that if we don't vote a certain way, then then we won't be able to have faith. He's like, no, 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 no. no. If you if you can't see me, despite your candidate losing, you have failed the Sermon on the Mount in a fundamental, foundational way. And 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 keep in mind, right? To honor your father and mother was one of the commandments, right? The way that we honor our father and mother is to put them second to God. And the way that we honor the emperor, as it says in 1 Peter, or the president right now, whether that is President Trump or a a President Biden, is by putting them second to God and making sure the disordered affections of our hearts are informed by the gospel first, period. So, so it's a big task, but you can't undertake it if you don't start from an aspect of humility. Um, mm. And if you think that you're, as you said, you think you're the guy who's got the answer, um, then you're already disqualified because you're not being humble. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, boy. So that leaves a much larger question that uh, would be several volumes, um, uh, which, which is, you know, what, what parts of the gospel do we need to emphasize uh, in order to get there, um, uh, you know, the uh, one of the tragedies, I think, in the 20th century in the church growth movement is, is as we develop the kind of consumer uh, Christianity, 
is that is that it, it we developed this reductionist theology where everything was about the moment of salvation, basically salvation uh, uh, by grace through faith. That was it, um, and and there wasn't really anything more to it um, because that was a fairly easy commodity to sell. Um, and I think uh, we need to develop a much a more multi-dimensional uh, approach to theology. You used the word holistic uh, a few minutes ago. Can you give us uh, just tick off a couple of uh, hallmarks of a more th- holistic theology that you think is something we can we can uh, institute in our rebuilding institution? Ah, uh, man, um, that that that's a really good question. Um, I think I think we have to get back to the basics. I don't think the answer to this is a is is anything new, but incredibly historically rooted gospel of pick up your cross and follow me, and that that resurrection happens on the other side of death to self, and that's the opposite of the individualism, the American exceptionalism that has shaped us ten hours for every one hour you spend on su- Sunday morning, if not far more, and we have we what drives the desire to achieve our own identity instead of receive it is 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 a kind of a spiritually functional assumption that resurrection happens through our achievement and it doesn't it happens because we have let go of our achievement i mean i'll, I'll just tell you i'll just be real honest with you right as a church planter um we had a lot of really amazing success at the beginning of planting the table and we were able to send off a church plant before we were fully established as ourselves into Longmont. It's called uh, Redeemer Longmont. Justin Chapel is an amazing planter. He's going to, he's killing it. And, and that's great. But we've also like, we've hemorrhaged some people because as a church that is very uh, upstream uh, of politics, I hear both, uh, you know, criticism and people leave the church because they think I'm a Bernie bro uh, because that's, Honestly, that's really hilarious. I, I'm not, not that I have anything against Bernie bros. Well, I think the, it's the mustache. I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's the mustache. Yeah. You know, I, I just play a hipster on TV. I'm not actually one. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but and on the other side, right. Um, having conservative values is perceived as being intolerant and, uh, and, and abusive. So clearly you're, you're, you're a bigot. <laughs> you know, it, it is, it is, it is so easy to be misheard right now. I'm just not even surprised anymore. No. Um, but my, my point in that is I am learning as a church planter that losing people because of this polarization that's happening and, and the table even shrinking is not, according to the gospel, loss. It is, it is the death that precedes resurrection and, and, and a redefinition of resurrection that may not be, you know, massive church growth and size and, and like, we're going to make up for lost time. It might actually be fi- a, a, a different and deeper sense of fidelity uh, and, and a remnant being formed for, for whatever is coming down the pike culturally. That's hard for me. I don't know if you, if you do Enneagram, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Like I literally, the label is the achiever. Like this is not, this is, this feels like death to me. (laughs) So it's not pleasant, but we have to understand that 
Like, how would it change the intensity and urgency and anxiety we're experiencing heading up to the election if we actually understood, however, we're defining political loss as to be gain in Christ? New, yeah, wow. Change everything and turn it upside down. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, yeah, frankly, that whole take up your cross thing sounds pretty yucky to me. Oh uh, no, I yeah. wouldn't have done it that way if it were me. That's, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the fact of the matter is. Um, um, understanding that resurrection lies on the other side of suffering and death is um, counter to our cultural narrative over the last 100 years or 125 years. We've been in, a, in an era of constant progress. Everything's getting better, 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 always better, always better, always better. And if things are always getting better, who needs God, frankly? And um, and I certainly don't want to sign up for that um, suffering deal because that sounds uh, like it's going to get in the way of my vacation. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, even even though like we like Bryce uh, and I, uh, who when we started this this podcast, Toward the beginning of the pandemic, you know, just like everybody else did, uh, it's like a hobby now starting a podcast, but uh, we we started it with the assumption of like, how do we have a kingdom mindset instead of a scarcity mentality that assumes that we are, uh, that, that like, what if, what if this could be an opportunity for spiritual renewal and revival? And I tell you, I tell you what, we were, we were talking recently about how much like, wow, did that feel naive in hindsight? This is actually going to get a lot worse. A lot worse. And, and even when you have this like, you know, cruciform mentality that resurrection happens on the other side of, uh, of death, even then, even if you have that, and that's actually like you're, you're aware of that, you're trying to focus on it, we still have no clue. We still uh, are underestimating potentially where, what God is going to allow to happen to the church in order to form a remnant and 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 build kingdom health again. Yeah, and and if as the rug gets yanked out from under um, American political stability and American prosperity, which are all fruits of the um, of the liberal consensus, as the as uh, as the rug gets yanked out, um, the church is going to find itself having to address a lot of confused, angry, and um, hurt people. Uh, and I think that's something we need to be ready to do. Yeah. The, here, here's the good news of this. It, like, this isn't just a, like a theologically rooted hope it's historical and even contemporary, right? We, even the loss of a classically liberal consensus is no threat to the church. Exactly. If anything, you see the church thrive where there is less freedom to do so. And whether that's contemporary China, where, where Christianity is spreading like wildfire, or whether you're talking about the first two to three centuries after Jesus's death and resurrection uh, under Nero and Christians being fed to lions, that is the starkness of the contrast of a sovereign God who comes to care for his people, preserve a remnant, and then give rise to all of the, the modernity and the benefits of classical liberalism we have today because of Christianity at its root. Once again, we're back full circle to, to everything that we are dealing with right now is a result of either pursuing the kingdom without the king or trying to worship the king without pursuing his kingdom and reducing Jesus to a mascot. Either way, God loves us way too much to let us keep going down that trajectory.
man, that's that's a beautiful summation. If you'd said that in the first minute, we'd have been done. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Um, d- d- does anybody else out there have anything they want to uh, ask or interject? You, if you're already if you're muted, muted you got to remember to unmute yourself. Okay, not everyone at once now. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, that, Brad, you've talked a lot of stuff that, uh, in fact, Jude and I were having a conversation earlier about some of the things that you were uh, brought up. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's, in every bad thing, there's always going to be opportunity. And I think that's where the church has kind of blown it right now through the whole pandemic of yelling and screaming, you know, that, oh, we can't meet in our build, building, you know. Well, you got a neighbor you can go take care of? <laughs> Isn't that being the church? And, yeah, it's there. there's definitely something coming down the pike. And I think even when you were talking about, you know, if we go into the racial issues mm. of, uh, you know, specifically the black people right now, I think are, are the one out of the 99. And that's why you're having all of this. And I think there's going to be things raised up out of that. And you're not going to see this classic revival that, uh, you know, the church feel the white revival going on. I loved how you were talking about with the remnant. Mm. Man, there's a ton of remnants out there. If you listen to some people, you know, everybody and his brother, we're the remnant. We're the remnant. And yeah, it's remnant of what is the question? (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's just, you know, I I love the way, you know, for me, this helped to center me even further back on keeping my eyes on Jesus and not on Caesar. Man, I, I, and I, just to, to, to really reinforce what you're saying, honestly, like if, (laughs) let's ask a question, you know, if only the white evangelical church in the United States had a contemporary example or ecclesiology or a church that has learned to be faithful to Jesus, uh, both in, in worship and mission, with while in the midst of having multiple, many generations of, of oppression— and and discrimination against them and how to like speak the truth with love despite that not being returned in kind and not having your dignity value and worth upheld by either institution or individuals in your community if only there was a a you know a church example that that we could learn from in the midst of this this you know coming down the pike moment that we that we're facing and i've said this i've said so many times to our people like you know we we have had the opportunity and have chosen not to learn from the the black evangelical church on what faithfulness looks like. And I'll tell you what, what is most humbling and amazing to me is like, you know, you know, a group of people in this country are probably feeling less anxious uh, uh, about like whatever's happening culturally. That doesn't mean they're, they find it less important, but the black evangelical church is like, yeah, we've been here. And, and Nothing new for us. Faith. It threatens our lives. Absolutely. And and, and that's, that is important. And we should be linking arms with them in every way. And the, it's not a threat to their faith, though. You don't hear that coming from them. You're only hearing that coming out of coming from white evangelicals and, frankly, uh, the, the, the Trump administration. Uh, that's it is politically motivated to have that kind of of anxiety and fear. You can't. Yeah. 
catastrophizing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really, uh, I think, um, points out the part of the danger in all of this is what you were describing earlier with the ex evangelicals, which are, you become so disillusioned. You just decide that uh, the whole thing was a, was a crock in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, frankly for most people um their faith is tenuous enough anyway that they don't really need to be shoved over the edge into complete uh, di- uh unbelief yeah. um and so that's that's a danger and that's something that that we who are charged with um um you know tending people in their faith uh we need to be very careful about making sure that that uh that sheep are kept safe because it's uh it's very um it's very difficult times People are, people need to be challenged to grow up, but they also need to be told that it's safe. Yes, absolutely. I've been meeting regularly uh, for the last few years with a group of men from a church I used to be on the staff of, and it's in a fairly affluent area of Denver. And the one thing um, that I've noticed, which, which again this morning happened again, uh, is when you address the whole aspect of humility as being necessary for this whole thing to even have any chance of um, of us creating a kingdom culture, making a kingdom culture alongside the craziness, uh, is American arrogance. Hmm. Uh, it's hard to get through that arrogance. Um, as many times as you might bring up uh, biblical teaching concerning humility, which is all over the place. We're going through Hosea right now, and the guys are aware of the fact that the same parallel exists in Hosea that exists now, and and their response is fear. Mm -hmm. It's not repentance. Hmm. Uh, And I don't see anything much happening um, institutionally until that happens. I see individuals. I see individuals getting it. I don't see um, our leadership getting it. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, (laughs) this is where, you know, a lot of us, it's kind of hard sometimes to, to, to cross the cultural bridge between uh, Leviticus and modern uh, situations, but this is one where I, I'm like, oh, this is why this matters, right? The the Levitical law around, you know, not eating cloven hoofed animals and not eating uh, uh, pork is because the economy of Israel was very much uh, surrounded by an econ- economies and trade of 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 pig, right? And the reason, part of the reason why, not only, but part of the reason why God did not want Israel to be enmeshed in that is because they knew, he knew that economically, if we were influenced by other countries, Israel would be, uh, culturally, it would too. And there's a a sense that um, this is why the love of money is the root of all evil, is that when we have been compromised economically, then we become compromised culturally, and we become compromised culturally, then we're compromised spiritually. And, and I don't see the dynamic you're describing changing until the economic foundations are destroyed and rebuilt. Like that's where, not in the short term, uh, but definitely in the, in the long term, I still think the effects of this pandemic and all of the kind of global 
disruption to the economic uh, order can can produce uh, a humility that is responsive to that. But we're not anywhere close to there yet, I don't think. Right. And and humility, um, as you said, Pete, you don't see it from a lot of the leaders. Um, the, the whole part of the American paradigm that we are unfortunately so enmeshed in is is that idea of the uh, you know omnicompetent leader. Um, if you're going to be a leader, you can't show any um, a- any lack of, of of trust in yourself because uh, if you do, people won't trust you, and if they don't trust you, then you won't be successful. And so you need to be bulletproof, man. Um, and the you know, whole idea of humility. Um, if I hey, if I'm going to be humble, I wouldn't be the guy up here on the platform. Um, and and that is one of those places where our our culture the American culture works against the culture of the church. We've created this entrepreneurial model. Um, it's kind of the, uh, the uh, Walmartization of, uh, of the church. We've created this entrepreneurial model and you have to keep pressing the pedal to the metal or things start going in reverse. And um, you know, that creates a lot of anxiety for leaders, um, but it also doesn't create disciples. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with the book that just came out uh, by Scott McKnight called A Church Called Tov, T-O-V-E, which is the Hebrew word for good or goodness. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, in the first part of the book, uh, takes on the toxic culture in so many churches and uses the examples of Willow Creek and um, Saddleback. No, McDonald's Church. Um, oh, Harvest. 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 And others. And I'm familiar with both of those churches quite through my family. Um, but then goes on to talk about what goodness looks like. And and really, it comes down to love. It comes down to the greatest commandment. And it's not just their neighbor we're to love. We're also to love our enemies. And one of the things you said about the persecution complex, so to speak, of Americans what that leads to is a feeling that we're victims. And that creates an us and them situation, which is destructive. One of the things I mentioned this morning to the guys when they, they you know, I just asked the question, I said, okay, if this parallel exists between what's happening with Israel and Hosea and us today, what do we do about it as followers of Christ? And there was total silence. There was total silence. <laughs> this is you're talking about about thirty guys on who are not stupid. <laughs> Man, I was most telling. <laughs> yeah, no, this right. This is this is the problem. Um, so, for this this politics sermon series, we've we've normally before the pandemic and in even in the first part of it, we've we've done a, a text in Q and A that right after the sermon, but before we move into communion, people can text in anonymously, whatever questions about the sermon, the passage or the topic that I'm talking about, whatever they want. Like there's no question that's not allowed. And we, we tackle them real time, but for politics, we're like, ha, let's, uh, we need more context. Let's do this over zoom. And so instead of like seven to eight minutes, it's been an hour long every week. And we've had more participation in that than anything we've done as a church. Uh, it's amazing. And one of the things, uh, one of the recent sermons uh, had a, actually Bryce from my podcast uh, preached a 
sermon on like the importance of the church in the midst of this kind of political moment. And it was, it was honestly, it was fascinating. The, the first and gut reaction that so many of our people had uh, in the Zoom Q&A afterwards was, well, if the church is the one that's responsible for this, in many ways, the evangelical church responsible for this, this political toxicity that we're in the midst of, why should we invest in the very thing that's causing it? I was like, I got, I'm a Presbyterian. I have a pretty high ecclesiology. Like I, <laughs> the, the institutional church is, is like, I, I love it, right? The bride of Christ and, and my own people in a lot of ways, uh, I, I underestimated how counterintuitive that is for so many of us right now. And it's because of what you're describing. It's because uh, we have this understanding of power that is not biblical and it's zero sum. And we, we think that having power just by its very nature is going to lead to abuse. And that's not true. The, th- the difference between power that results with abuse versus flourishing is character. It's character. It's virtue. And that only happens as a result of going through pain and suffering. So what's missing here is not the church having too much power or institutions having power or or pastors having power. The problem is we haven't suffered enough yet. And that's what things like harvest and all those things, that ultimately is what, that's what that tells me is we have become too accustomed to comfort, affluence, success, achievement, the American dream, not, not a kingdom reality. Arrogance. Yeah. It leads to arrogance because we think that those things have happened because of us and not a blessing from God, not something we've received, but achieved. Yeah. I saw something yesterday uh, where they were showing how much uh, Stephen Furtick's church is worth. (sighs) multi millions of dollars of what they have and it's like what about the widow's might you know and to take that another step is my barber here in westminster he grew up in korea immigrated here in his late teens he's now in his late 40s uh follower of jesus so the barber chair is amazing with him and they they had this little church up on uh about 94th and huron and it blows me away what this little church, this little group of first and second generation of people from Korea do. They're, they support a mission, ongoing mission in Nicaragua. They support a, a missionary on a Hopi uh, reservation down in Arizona and have increased to help him out because of everything going on with the pandemic. And where have we lost that? It's like I put out at my church, thankfully nobody's around today, uh, to collect, uh, just bring in a bag of candy to give to another church that I was going to help out this Saturday. I got two bags of candy on Sunday. Sent an email out on Tuesday. That was all. And it's like, you know, where is the love of Jesus? Mm. And like you said, I mean, what's something God spoke to me to a few weeks back is we spend so much time either virtually or in conferences. And God's like, what if you spent half that time with me? Mm. What a difference would that make? I think one of the things that's not really spoken of very often that's at work here, which I think is a powerful force, the reality that in the next 10, 15 years, every uh, group is going to be in a minority. 
uh, mm. white folks are being a minority. And, and this is one of the triggers of what's motivating the white church. And uh, I've been involved in cross-racial relationships for over 50 years. And the difficulty of navigating that territory is something the church is going to have to own up to. Um, the younger generations are doing this obviously much, much better, but uh, they're not the ones in charge of most of our institutions. They will be. Man, I, I, I tell you what, I, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're hitting on something I've been thinking a lot about that I don't fully, I mean, I hold this really loosely too, but like I, I see this within my own denomination too, which is, um, you know, on, in a really good way, uh, the because of healthcare and advances in medicine and technology, we're all living longer than we used to. But that means that the kind of passing the baton of leadership intergenerationally that has happened uh, at significantly younger and uh, earlier stages of life is not happening, uh, and it's or it's happening crazy late. And that is stratifying generationally the same culture war and polarization we're seeing, uh, not just culturally or ethnically, but intergenerationally now too. And that is making this so much worse uh, because it intensifies uh, on every side the the idolatry of power that we're going to use power instead of uh, instead of relationship or or grace to to influence or or, or move things forward. And that's. God, that's making things so much harder. And, and it's, you're right, because as soon as my generation, millennials actually get the rain, uh, you know, get the rains, uh, we're going to be like, oh crap, now what? <laughs> and we're going to be in the driver's seat of the thing that we have built. Uh, and that I don't look forward to that being the case, but it's going to be built on power instead of, instead of community. Yeah. You'll, you'll just be sending us guys uh, uh, the directions on which gas chamber we're supposed to report to. Oh, God. <laughs> that escalated fast. Um, oh, no, no, no. I, not you specifically. Well, still. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and, 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 and there are so many different dynamics here. Um, you know, we live in a culture where adolescence, you know, adolescence didn't used to exist. You went from being a child to being an adult. There was there was no adolescence once upon a time. Now, it's now adolescence, you know, lasts till you're 30 or maybe 40 or or you know, some people never outgrow adolescence. And so there's this quasi twilight uh, zone where you're not really a child anymore, but you're not mature enough to be an adult anymore. Uh, but you're not mature enough to be an adult, and and so all these questions about uh, institutional continuity. Um, are left in abeyance. I will say that, uh, Brad, just to give you some hope, though, in terms of the intergenerational thing, the, uh, the reality is, and this has been shown through research, is that generation cycle between dominant and recessive generations. The mm -hmm. millennials are a dominant generation, as are the boomers. In many ways, uh, millennials have been so influenced by their boomer parents. They're almost like boomers on steroids. Uh, those two generations have the best hope of moving the church forward, working together, because the boomers are still, they, they're more likely to invest in you guys than the previous generation, the silent generation. And Gen X is so wounded and broken. Many, many of the, uh, the guys you see who are joining these 
militias and white supremacist groups are guys coming out of Gen X because they have been, they've had to raise themselves in many ways culturally. Mm. If, you, if you look at their their history, it was two parents working or single mom working and the TV was their uh, babysitter. It's, it's a broken generation. So the point I'm making is mm. uh, those, I think the boomer millennial axis can help move the church forward because those two generations will talk to each other. Man, I, I hope you're right. Um, as a, you know, our, the table is mostly millennial, I would say, and we've got some Gen X and like a couple boomers, but so much of the, the kind of post evangelical frustration I hear actually is, uh, rooted in the consumerism, uh, of the boomer generation that, that says like, it's about me. I deserve buying a Lexus, right? Like I hate those Christmas commercials every year that has like a, you deserve this because you've worked really hard by having the most successful economy in the history of the world handed to you on a silver platter because of the sacrifice of your parents. But no, you deserve this. Like, I don't think that's <laughs> like, that doesn't feel healthy. Um, and, and, but I tell you what, the boomers that are at the table, I am so grateful to God for them because they are, they do exactly what you're describing. And I, I have, I have the millennials we have are, are, I am humbled by their humility because they are, they are show up at the table and are like, I really wish there were older people here I, I could learn from. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's new culturally. Let's keep that going. How do we, how do we keep incentivizing and nourishing that? Wow. Yeah, I'm talking about a small percentage of boomers. I'm talking about 10% or less. Yeah. I really, uh, my wife and I attend a church where I'm by far the oldest guy in the room. Yeah. Um, they're mostly probably the average age of the church is 35, between 35 and 40. And uh, we have a lot to learn from each other. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the kind of minority... Um, the idea that we're going to be a far more uh, pluralistic country and culture that you referenced earlier. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I highly commend uh, what's called the, the Hidden Tribes Report uh, that describes and, and uses some amazing demographic data that shows that only 14%, I think 6% on the left and 8% on the right, or I might have, I might have those switched up, but the, the two tribes on the, on the extremes are responsible for the vast majority of the polarization that we're seeing right now. And there is in the middle, these four tribes that they refer to as the, the exhausted majority. And so the people who like truly do want to like exhaustion sounds, uh, humbling. So if there is anything to be, to be focusing on and trying to cultivate right now, it is an exhausted that is, uh, energized, but still humble. Like, how do we do that? Uh, and I, I think that's going to require some supernatural help, but I think that's where the opportunity is. Absolutely. Amen. Totally agree with that. Amen. That's good stuff. Well, gentlemen, we have um, we have exceeded our time limit here. Brad, did you have to be out anyway? Uh, I'm good. I, I, like, I like hanging out with you guys. You're fun. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've hit one o'clock, and that's uh, usually the cutoff time. Uh, does anybody want to have a last word here? Uh, Becky or Mike, do you guys have anything?
see if someone gets chewed off the floor there. Maybe he, he, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> usually, he, usually he puts his grinning picture up. I'm sorry, Becky. Was that something? Yeah. Who should I vote for? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's the end of this show. We're not going there. <laughs> uh, Ronald Reagan, just like the uh, governor of Virginia, <laughs> Maryland. Uh, yeah, vote for James Madison, I think. <laughs> I'm happy to offer my opinion after the recording button is pushed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brad. Um, appreciate it a lot. Are you going to be able to join us on the 4th? Uh, yeah, I, I am game i'm gonna have to uh, i'm gonna have to drink less whiskey the night before so i'm, I'm able to participate fully but um <laughs> well I'm, I'm happy to be here and uh i will be scratching my head as much as anybody else i'm sure right and with any luck we'll have uh, brandon washington as well so that, that'll be good yes that, that, that'll be a very interesting chat um Tell your friends, uh, get your family members to tune in uh, just because, you know, you need someone to affirm you. And um, let's let's try to get more people on here. Um, I, I told Brad before, sometimes we have as few as eight. Sometimes we have as many as 40. Um, we need to get more people involved here because this is an important conversation, I think. So once again, thank you, Brad. Thank you, Pete. Uh, thanks uh, for being in attendance, everybody. And um, let's as all of this comes bearing down on us, let's try to remember who God is and who we are in Christ, because that's really about the only hope there is for anything. Amen. Thank Amen. you very much. Well, thanks for joining us today on Everything Just Changed. We'll be taking a break for the next couple of weeks, but we do have a couple of special bonus episodes we're going to be releasing, so don't miss those. We'll be back in the new year with season three of Everything Just Changed where Brad and I will be exploring the theme of identity. We live in a culture that is being rocked by the issue of identity, whether it's identity politics or our individual struggles to achieve an identity for ourselves through success and work or other areas of life. So we're going to talk about what does it look like to receive our identity from God rather than achieving it ourselves, and what difference does receiving rather than achieving our identity make in the way that we interact with our deeply polarized culture. We've got several guests lined up as well that you won't want to miss. Stay tuned for that in the new year. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back soon right here on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.